about the scripture and how important it is, uh, how essential really it is in helping us understand the reason for which God has created us and uh, how he has done that and why. In fact, one of the great places to go in understanding that is the Ten Commandments. And uh, we're not going to be reading the Ten Commandments, but I want to set our thinking for a moment in the Ten Commandments because Jesus uses one of them to jump off to his teaching uh, today. Uh, you might remember some of the Ten Commandments. Uh, maybe you won't be able to recite all ten of them, but they're found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And uh, they're things such as, Have no other gods besides me. Honor your father and mother. Do not steal. And so forth. The Ten Commandments. These were given by God, given to this community that he was carving out of the world because he wanted to give shape to that community. He wanted to uh, let that community know uh, how it was to be in the world. It was a way of distinguishing that group of people from among all of the other peoples to say to the world, this is what it means to worship God, to enter into and to go through your life in the presence of the living God. To be a light to others about highlighting the goodness and the greatness of God. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6, right after the Ten Commandments are given, we are reminded that these commandments that God gives us are to be upon our hearts. It's not just a list that we hang on the wall and check periodically. These are ways that we are to begin to live and to understand life and to govern how we go through our life together. One of the Ten Commandments is this. You shall not commit adultery. Marriage, God says, and the nuclear family, God says, is established by God for the common good. The common good of humanity. It is the most basic unit, family is, is the most basic unit of society in order to care for and to nurture people. Family is intended to be a stable place to provide for and to prepare children for their adult life. It is intended to be a stable place, but we know so many families in our day are unstable, aren't they? Perhaps you've come and grown up out of an unstable situation. Stability, God says, stability in the family is tied to fidelity in marriage. Stability in the family is tied to fidelity in marriage. As ancient peoples began to organize marriage and the, the constructs around marriage, it became accepted, an accepted practice for a husband at times to uh, have extramarital relationships so long as those relationships were not involving another man's wife. And into that sort of reality, Jesus enters and teaches the, the deeper meaning, the, the heart meaning of the words of the Ten Commandments, teaching everyone, including husbands, that we're to be faithful and faithfully committed to our marriage. Once again, in this teaching, Jesus elevates women and provides dignity to them. Let's hear from Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, we continue in our Sermon on the Mount series here, trying to listen, trying to lead into what Jesus has to tell us. And today, it is about marriage fidelity. He says in verse 27, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that 
looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. You see, in verse 28, we find this teaching. He, Jesus says, he's just said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But now he's, he's deepening, he's expanding, he is making more real in our hearts, right? These commandments, Deuteronomy says, are to be upon your hearts. We, I want to etch them, I want to engrave these realities on your heart, not as not as a unbearable list of duties in your life, but as life-giving guidelines for how to engage in this world in healthy patterns. One of those is marriage. But Jesus says that there is an undermining reality to marriage, that there is a lustful reality in our hearts that can undermine and undercut and destroy marriages. He says for those who look upon a woman with lustful intent. The idea of look, this word to look, there, there's something about when you walk up to somebody and you say, hi, how you doing? It's altogether different when you walk up to somebody and you say, hi, how you doing? You catch the difference, right? It's altogether different. And that's a bit of the content or context of what Jesus is saying with this word look. If you look upon someone with this Lustful intent. Um, the, the word Greek word in, in this particular arrangement means something like to look intently at. It's to to drink something in. It's the same word used in Acts chapter one. You remember Jesus has ascended up. You remember after his resurrection from the dead, he's now ascended. The disciples are gathered. They're watching him disappear into the clouds. And then suddenly an angel appears to them. And the angel asks them this question: Hey guys. Why are you looking up into the sky? It's that same word, look. It's this, it's this intent look and research and understanding. It's, it's a, an intensity to, to looking. It's also the same word used in Matthew chapter 7. And this is a, a, a often a, a popular understood uh, quote of Jesus. That he says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and you don't even recognize the law that's in your own? It's that same word used there to look, Right? How can you be so critiquing of someone else and look so intently at their life and ignore what's happening in your life? That, that's the same word, to look, to look intently at something. This is the word in the way that Jesus is using it here. When, when you look intently, not just looking intently, but when you look, Jesus says, with lustful intent. With lustful intent. You see, that's the idea of craving someone who is not yours to have. Craving someone who is not yours to have according to the marriage and according to the sexual design of God. To crave something in your heart that is not yours to have. It's similar to the way another commandment of those ten are used. It's the idea of coveting. It's coveting something that is not yours to have. You see, these ideas, this looking, this drinking in intently at someone... And a craving in your heart to be with that person when that person is not yours to have. This is the reality that adultery, you see, Jesus is telling you. Adultery does not start in the bedroom. 
The pathway to adultery starts long before. And it is something we need to be alert and aware of. And to be proactive in preventing in our lives and in your marriages. You see, there is the look, right? The the look that leads to thinking about things, fantasizing about it, delighting in what we're seeing. And then in our hearts, there is somewhere along the way a consent. There is a a permission, a giving into that craving, that desire. And that is when sin, the trap of sin, has been sprung. In fact, later in this passage, when Jesus says, uh, if, if your right eye costs you to, to sin, cut it, cut it out, tear it off, and throw it away. If your right hand does, do the same. This, this idea of causing you to sin is a way of describing a trap. It's a way of, of setting a trap. You put the bait on the trap, and you're just waiting for something to come along and for the trap to be sprung. And that's just what this idea of sexual lust does for us, Jesus says. It's a trap that grabs hold of a heart. And will pull down a marriage and a life. And it's not what Jesus wants. In fact, the, the original Greek word used there for trap, causing you to sin, is, is the word, the Greek word, root. Uh, we get the English word scandal from it. And certainly it is indeed. Here's what God desires of you and of me, of us. God desires to grow us in personal holiness. God desires to grow you in Holiness, And sometimes, holiness means saying no to myself. Do you understand that? There are times when walking with Jesus means that you learn to say no to yourself. This is an art that our world has completely forgotten about. In our indulgence, in our thinking that nothing is out of bounds and nothing is off limits. We have such a little capacity anymore in our day to say no to ourselves, to deny ourselves. Jesus says, he told his disciples that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and come and follow me. So personal holiness and the happiness that comes with a life fully drenched in Jesus comes with an ability To practice self-denial when we are faced with things that will lead us away from God and provide destructive realities in our lives. Allowing the fullness of Jesus and His strength in you to overcome a desire. To overcome these fleshly desires. You might know the name Augustine, uh, one of the, the ancient writers, one of the great theologians of Christian history, if you like history, you'll remember that Augustine wrote a work called Confessions, and Confessions, most people would would say it's the original modern style of autobiography, where he was describing the the reality of his life and sharing and opening up vulnerably what was happening inwardly in his life. uh, Augustine was born in 354 in the country we now know as Algeria, and uh, he grew up, was a, a, a brilliant man, and began to be a teacher in rhetoric and uh, a common uh, expression of education in the day. He moved to the city of Carthage, and he describes Carthage in this way. He says, it was a hissing cauldron of lust. <laughs> and this was a real issue for Augustine. It was this issue of sexual expression and exploitation was something that he wrestled with his entire life. And God gave 
taken strength over it. For 15 years, he lived in Carthage with a woman and had a child with her. And eventually, he left her to take a post in Rome, teaching post. And it wasn't long after that when he found himself in Milan, Italy. And there, if you like church history, you know that he uh, was caught under the, the teaching of Ambrose, one of the great uh, stalwarts of church history. But it was in this moment of his life that he began to search and he began to evaluate his life and his sexual practices and, and this great sexual drive and desire that often was uncontrollable in his life. He, I think we would probably recognize an addiction perhaps in him. And he began to recognize that a lot of his sexual practices were ungodly, unbiblical, and unpleasing to the Lord. And uh, uh, he knew that they were, they were strong in him, but they were stunting his growth with God, And so he began to be faced with a question. What kind of pleasure would truly delight his soul? What kind of pleasure in life gives lasting pleasure in your day? This was the question. And he began to talk about and to God. And he says this. He says, I began to search for a means of gaining the strength to enjoy you. He's talking to God. To enjoy you. But I could not find this means until I embraced the mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ. And therein is the difference for him. He came into this encounter with Jesus in a very profound way, and it changed. He, he, he came face to face with his own sinfulness and, and turned away from that so that he could turn and embrace fully the living God, so that he could... Deny himself and take up his cross to follow Jesus. And he began the, this journey of wrestling. He, he was evaluating his life, and now he, he begins to wrestle with this, this root of lust in his life and heart. And he describes in Confessions, his book, that this raging battle within him. And it brought him to tears, it brought him to anguish. If you've ever known anybody in, in alcohol uh, withdrawals, he almost describes it in similar terms as he's wrestling inwardly with what really would bring him pleasure and how does he align himself fully as a disciple of Jesus. And God's Spirit is drawing him. And then he hears this child's voice at one point. This is the famous part of his recounting. And, and he hears this this child's lyric, take up and read, take up and read. And he took that as an indicator for God, an invitation to take up the Bible and begin to read it. And it didn't take long before he came face to face with God's instruction on healthy sexual expression and everything began to change for him. And he began to live a completely different life. Because he learned the joy and the pleasure of denying himself so that he could take up his cross and, and to be fully and completely engrossed in the life of Jesus, knowing that it was the ultimate pleasure and God is the ultimate pleasure of his life. You see, Jesus, when he uses this really amazing hyperbole, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to have it be lost than your whole body to go into the fire of hell. Same thing with your hand, to cut it off. If it's causing you to sin and, and to toss it away, it's better for that member of your body to be uh, consumed and dealt with than your whole body to be lost. What he's talking about is this vivid hyperbole. I don't believe that Jesus is literally meaning that we should mutilate ourselves. I don't think 
that is what is pleasing to him. But what he's telling you is to take this seriously. That this is not an issue to be trifled with. Yes, the world likes to laugh at what they would describe as Christian prudishness. But it's intended, God gives us this instruction on sexual purity. It is intended for your good. It's intended for the health of marriage. It is intended for the fidelity and the stability of marriage so that a family might be stable and there might be joy and the wonderful construct that God gives. So, when there's a person in your office that you become aware of, that you're beginning to have some sort of undesired feeling toward, pay attention. The person who lives down the street that you're beginning to enjoy when they walk by, pay attention. When you're at your gym and uh, you find that this other person is there at the same time and you know when to be at the right machine at the right time, pay attention. You get what I'm saying? Pixels on your computer screen will diminish personhood. Do you understand? There's been a substantial increase in the consumption of pornography during COVID. Experts tell us. And we know that studies are beginning to reveal how pornography consumption skews a healthy perception of the body. Pornography increases likelihood of casual sexual encounters that, that are outside of God's design and a beautiful construct for sexual engagement which glues a relationship together. You see, God views sex as beautiful and wonderful. It just has proper boundaries. And just like a river, when it overfloods its banks, becomes destructive. So when sexual desire overwhelms the, the boundary lines by which God has put into place, it becomes destructive in our minds. It becomes destructive in our society. And people can laugh all they want, but this is the reason Jesus gives us this teaching. So I want to conclude with just some tips on how we might learn to put away sexual lust or to interact with it. Sometimes it requires wrestling, there's no doubt. You're the one who knows how strong sexual lust, how strong of a, a lure and allure it has in your life. And for some of you, it might mean the need to create even stronger boundaries and guidelines for yourself. But it is for the benefit of your your life, your, your spirit before the Lord, it is the benefit of your, your future married life, your current married life, whatever it might be. When I was young, one of my favorite video games was the old Atari Pitfall. And if you ever played Pitfall, you, you remember that there's always a pit that you have to swing over, right? And you have to grab a vine and you swing over the pit. Yeah, this really is what old video games used to look like. The, the little black sort of uh, circle there in the, <laughs> the middle of it, ridiculous looking. You can see the snake over here, the scorpion. That's, that's what those are supposed to be. But the idea of the game is that you grab hold of the vine and you have to swing safely over the pit. And if you don't, it's a pitfall, right? Destruction ensues. And so here are three vines, three ropes to help you swing over the pitfall of sexual lust that undermines marriage so that you can be strengthened in your life. And if you're not yet married, if you're young and perhaps
Texas isn't even a consideration. You're invited to pray for God's purity. Here, here are the three, three ropes. One is be true. Be true to your marriage vows. You have made promises if you're married. You've made promises to your spouse. You've made promises before God. There's a reason that we gather witnesses together in a marriage ceremony. Do you know that? It's not just for everybody to celebrate and to party and to whoop-whoop when you kiss your bride. There, there's an ancient reason for gathering people together as witnesses in a marriage because it is in a communal setting that we gain strength and encouragement to stick to our marriage. It is in this uh, communal reality that we have accountability from others uh, that help make a marriage strong. So here's what I mean by be true. Be true and do your part, husband, and do your part, wife, to help your marriage to thrive, not merely to survive, but to thrive in your marriage. Because it is true that in our lives, in our marriage, married lives, as year goes by, year after year, decade after decade, there can grow in a marriage what one of the therapists describes as creeping separateness. Is that just over time there can be this separating of the like. There, there begins to be a growing lack of we have a, a common goal in the future, a common parenting goal, a common retirement goal, a common ministry goal, whatever it might be, just over time there is this, you start off desiring what God desires in your marriage, so that two people would become one, but as you move forward in your marriage, there's just this slow incremental separateness that creeps into life and be aware of that so that you can stay true to your marriage vows and to do your part to help your marriage thrive and not merely survive. It really does take both partners engaged together in marriage to make it thrive. So be, be true to your vows. Be alert is your second rope over the pitfall. Be alert be alert to an unusually high level of emotional attachment with somebody else. Be alert. Don't play with it. The Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 6, talks about, you know, who, who can take and scoop up fire on their lap without getting burned? Can you picture that image? <laughs> Scooping up fire, put it on your lap, of course you'll get burned. You see, sometimes we, we want to play around with these emotional things because it can be exciting at times and, and we feel like we're being seen. And it can be something that grows in us. But it's not to be. Those aren't to be entertained. They're to be alert. You know what recently caused a local wildfire that got contained, fortunately? You know what caused it? It was a simple spark from a lawnmower. That's all it took. It was one little spark, and this inferno took over. Be alert for the unexpected relational reality that's beginning to emerge. Just be alert. If it's something even you have not pursued, be alert that that spark in a relationship outside of your marriage is not allowed to catch fire. Be alert. So be true to your vows. Be alert. Be, be honest about the relationships around you outside of your marriage. And then the third final rope that I would suggest to you is what I call bouncing your eyes. Bounce your eyes. You know, Job, the writer of the Old Testament, he, he decided in his heart that he would not have lustful looks at women. He says in chapter 31, I made a covenant with my eyes. 
to look lustfully at a young woman. A blogger once said that, described it as custody, to take custody of your eyes, to, to, to not be enslaved to what your eyes see, but to be a master over your own eyes and over the heart that those eyes connect to and to not allow your heart to be carried away in a destructive way of married life. I realize that infidelity in marriage causes deep, deep trauma. I'm fully aware of that. And it breaks my heart that people would experience these enduring wounds of infidelity. And as I wrap up today, I, I, I want you to know that if you have suffered the wounds of infidelity in marriage, that God desires to heal that. That healing is usually not done in an instant. It's a process. and It is a growth over time of letting the Lord Jesus be with you and hold you and to walk with you through. But I believe with all my heart that healing is available and possible to you. And if you would like tips on how to do that or even uh, advice on therapists in the area, to help with that. I would be more than happy to help you with that. And if perhaps you've been on the other end of fidelity and you found yourself wrapped up in a relationship that surprised you and perhaps you've been the one that has stepped into and been the cause of infidelity, I want you to know that God will forgive you. That this is not a sin that is unforgivable before the Lord. In fact, any sin that has been committed for those who are truly repentant and desires the cleansing reality of Jesus, you, you are not tainted goods for the rest of your life. This is the goodness of God's grace to you. Healing is available. Forgiveness is available. God desires to do it. Let's pray. Living God, we pray this morning for your love, for your joy. That you would, you would speak to us, you would heal us, God, that you would strengthen us, that you might forgive us. May our marriages in this church, may they be strong and enduring, may they be settled and centered in your good presence, so that we as a community might live out a picture of the gospel with faithful, loving, joy-filled marriages. If there are marriages today in need of healing, God, would you touch and heal? We thank you for your love and your presence this day. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray together.